The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to find your way to John 18 this morning. Before we get there, though, I just want to pray for our time in the Word this morning. But I also want to remember um, that we have uh, some uh, folk in Nicaragua right now, uh, Larry Stack, Jeremy Moretz, and the rest of uh, the, t- the medical missions team arrived in Nicaragua on Friday. And Larry texted last night saying they had a wonderful day on Saturday of uh, not only being able to care for some medical needs of a number of the people uh, associated with the three local churches that are there, but they were able to spend a lot of time praying with, with each person. Uh, so that's just wonderful news. But I, I especially want to pray for Larry this morning as he has the pleasure of preaching in one of those, those local churches uh, from the book of Ephesians. So let me pray for uh, Larry and the team and then for our time as we come before God's word this morning. Father, we do humbly come before you uh, as we come before your word. I pray that you would help us to come uh, before you with um, hearts, uh, minds, ears that are attentive to hear your word. Father, help us to come expecting to hear you. Father, as I am just a weak vessel, I err. But Father, this is your very word. And you have chosen weak, infallible instruments to declare your word to your people. So I pray that as I preach your word this morning, as Larry preaches your word in Nicaragua, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to only say the things that stand in agreement with your word, that you would help us to be uh, only your humble servants. Father, help us all as we hear your word this morning to receive it with um, humility, with um, belief in your word, with understanding. Father, help it to move our hearts to obedience and to worship. Father, as we specifically look here today at this passage in John 18 and John 19, I pray that you would help the reality of what your son has done for us to sink deep into our souls. Help us just as we think through what appears to be just the tragedy of the sufferings and the cross that Christ bore. Help us to see in it your perfect plan of redemption and help us to worship you. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles open, we're gonna be in John 18, um, John 18, verse 38. We're gonna go through verse 16 of chapter 19. But when I, when I, Read, I want to start off in verse 37, just to kind of help tie the the scenes that we've been looking at uh, together. 
So I'm going to read from John 18, 37, uh, through, halfway through John 19. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid he entered in his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given unto you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Last Sunday, we, as we were in this, the first part of this kind of trial scene where Jesus is brought by the Jewish authorities to Pilate, and they had this discussion about kingdoms and about truth, we saw Jesus declare that his kingdom is not of this world. He said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
And as we saw last week, that truth is the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And as John says in his, in his purpose statement in John 20, to believe these things, that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, today, as we look at the second half of this trial where Jesus is before Pilate, we're going to look at the idea of authority. The question of authority comes up in this passage. And we have a couple earthly authorities that we see kind of struggling against one another. We have the, the Jewish authorities making their demands of Pilate. But their demands ultimately had to be carried out, had to be agreed upon by a, a Gentile ruler over them. Then you have that Gentile ruler, you've got Pilate, who believed he had the authority to release Jesus and the authority to crucify Jesus. But you have this interesting dynamic where three times Pilate declares that Jesus isn't guilty. Three times he says, I have found no guilt in this man. Well, if he had the authority to release Jesus, he should have released Jesus. But you have Pilate in his fear of man listening to the voice of this angry mob of Jewish leaders and the Jewish people calling for him to crucify Jesus and then threatening to tell on him. We're going to go to Caesar and tell on you. So even Pilate recognizing that Jesus is innocent, claiming to have authority, really has no authority at all. Then you have Jesus. I just want to read a few, a few verses that we've studied as we've looked through the Gospel of John just to kind of build this, this picture of authority that, that John has been building for us. In John 1, a famous opening to John's gospel, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 3, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. John 5, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. The father has given the son authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And then you see just Jesus' authority come out through all the signs that John has been building up in his gospel with this climax of raising Lazarus from the dead and the voice of authority, the same voice that spoke all of the universe, all of creation into existence. Let there be and there was. That same voice is Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. You want authority John has laid out the case for Jesus' authority, and yet here is Jesus standing kind of between these two earthly authorities that 
One's calling out, demanding their way to crucify Jesus. Another says, I find no guilt, but still can't find it within himself in this supposed authority he has to release him. And you have Jesus, the author of life, standing there silent like a lamb before its shears. He had the authority to call down his angels and wipe everyone out. He had the authority just to speak, pilot the Jewish authorities out of existence. So we're going to look today why is Jesus in this place between these two struggling earthly authorities? Why? is he who has authority over both of them is subjecting himself to them. So let's take a closer look at the, the firstly earthly authorities in today's passage. The Jewish authorities, there's a, a couple things here that just really ought to kind of come screaming off the page at us and have us scratching our heads. And it really helps us to see the darkness of their minds, the darkness of their hearts, the hatred for Jesus. In, verse, in chapter 19, verse 7, they bring forward the charge of blasphemy. And this isn't an empty charge. In Leviticus, we see that if someone blasphemes against God, if someone blasphemes the name of God, they deserve death. They were meant to be brought out of the city and stoned by the people. So it's not necessarily an empty charge that the Jewish authorities are bringing, this charge of blasphemy. But they fail to recognize a key point. What if the one saying that he is the son of God is the son of God? then the charge of blasphemy falls flat. And who are they expecting as their Messiah? They were expecting an earthly king to come riding into town, conquering the Roman authority over them and, and establishing, reestablishing Jewish rule. But that is not the Messiah that the Old Testament told them to expect. They should have known by reading their scriptures that the Messiah would be a suffering servant, that the Messiah was the Son of God come to redeem them as a Passover lamb. They should have recognized these things, but they didn't. So in this charge of blasphemy that they bring against Jesus, it's a denial of the very truth of the Messiah. John's entire gospel has been painting this picture for them as John draws out sign after sign that Jesus has done and along each step of the way the very signs that should have been telling the, Jew, the Jews and especially the Jewish authorities who knew their, the word it should have been showing them that this is the son of God but with each sign came Rejection after rejection after rejection. Even after raising Lazarus from the dead, 
you see the statement that they then began to seek to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus. They couldn't stand it. Then as this, the trial continues, you have this appeal that the Jewish authorities begin to make to Caesar. All of a sudden, these Jewish people, the Jewish authorities, who did want a conquering hero to come in and conquer Rome, to conquer Caesar, all of a sudden they're appealing to Caesar's authority. They say in verse 12, chapter 19, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And then they make this statement at the end where they cry out as Pilate brings Jesus before them and he says, you want me to crucify your king? And they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. This reminds me of the first time we see the Jewish people in a situation with a king where they come to Samuel and they, they demand that they get a king like all the other nations. And, and Samuel is just devastated over this. And Samuel goes to God and, and God says, Samuel, it's okay. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. He says, they have rejected me from being king over them. They were waiting for a Messiah out of the line of Judah, the son of David, to come and sit enthroned as their king. They're waiting for a king, but again, as they have denied the Messiah in their In the statements that they've made to Pilate, they deny him again by saying, we have no king but Caesar. And yet that's what they should have been waiting for was their king. But they say, we have no king but Caesar. And for this, Christ says, you don't really know when, when Christ speaks to, to Pilate and he says, the one that delivered uh, me to you has the greater sin is he talking about Judas? Is he talking about Caiaphas? Is there a sense that he's talking about all the Jewish authorities? It doesn't necessarily really matter. He says they have the greatest sin. They know what they are doing. Earlier in John 5, Jesus warned the Jewish authorities. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So in all these statements, you have the Jewish authorities who aren't recognizing their Messiah standing before them. Then you have Pilate, the Gentile authority. Pilate, as I've already said three times, Three times says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. 
And he tries various ways to kind of appease the people and get out of the situation. First, he tries to release him with this custom that they have of releasing a prisoner during the Passover. But the people didn't want their king released. They call out for Barabbas. Okay, so Pilate then tries something else. Well, maybe I can appease the people by punishing Jesus. Says he gives him to the soldiers and they flog him. Now, as we harmonize the Gospels, John, John leaves out some details. As you read through the other Gospels, you see there's kind of this back and forth in the trial between Pilate and Herod. It also appears as we harmonize the Gospels that there's actually two times that Christ was flogged. This time, where Pilate is simply trying to appease the people by giving some form of punishment and then one more, one final flogging before Jesus is sent to be crucified. And we know that Rome had three levels of flogging that they would employ against criminals. The flogging that Pilate administers here at the hands of the soldiers is, is the lesser of the floggings. And what a flogging without getting into too many details. It is a family service. But a flogging would use a, a leather whip with multiple strands. And at the end of the strands would be tied various pieces of bone and metal. So even a lesser of the three floggings would not have been good. the highest degree of the flogging that Jesus likely received right before he was marched out of the city to be crucified would have been the, the most severe of the flogging. And this was a flogging that was basically meant to bring someone up to the edge of death. Especially in a time like this where they're crucifying on Friday, the instead of waiting days for someone to die on the cross, this would help speed the process up so that the Jews could bury their dead before the Sabbath. That, that final flogging would have been horrific. In fact, many, many prisoners died in that flogging before even having the opportunity to take their crossbeam and carry it out, out of the city. But this flogging here is a, the lesser of the floggings, one meant to inflict much harm, but not to kill the person. And Pilate here tries to appease the people. He flogs them and, and the soldiers in their cruelty put a crown of, of thorns upon Christ's head and put a purple robe around him and beat him. But you think about that scene and you think about Jesus who's exalted, sits on high as king of kings and lord of lords, wearing a crown of thorns. Thorns, the, the fruit of the curse. 
the king, the one with true authority in this scene, the one that from all outward appearances you would think has no authority here, but the one with all the authority. Rightly has a crown put on his head, but it's a crown of thorns. He is about to go and bear the weight of the curse. And he bears on his head a symbol of that very curse. Still bringing Jesus out in front of the the angry mob, Pilate doesn't find any pity among the mob. Instead, they just yell out, crucify him, crucify him. And then finally, after the people challenged Pilate's authority, they challenged his authority by invoking the name of Caesar. Pilate and Caesar, as we know from history, didn't have the greatest, greatest of relationships. Um, I think Pilate would eventually um, get on the bad side of Caesar. So fearing Caesar, he gives in to the demands of the people and allows him to be delivered to the soldiers for crucifixion. But then we have the real authority in this whole picture, the real authority in this whole trial. Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So through all the noise and all the commotion between the Jewish authorities and Pilate, these earthly authorities, through all that noise, all the flexing of muscles back and forth, you have Jesus humbly standing there saying, your authority is only yours because it's been given to you. We know from scripture, Romans 13, that God establishes all authority, especially that we, in Romans 13 speaks especially of earthly governments. But I believe this is even drilling down just to the person of Pilate himself. Jesus is saying, God has put you in this time and place to be that Gentile authority that would deliver the very son of God to be crucified. You think that you have such great authority, but it's by God's divine providence, his divine purpose that he has placed you here. You have no authority if it had not been given you from above. Through all the beating and the mocking of God's son by the soldiers, it's Jesus who stands as the one with authority in this situation. God's plan of redemption for his fallen creation was taking place. Even though from the outside looking in, you would have no idea that God's purposes were being carried out in this scene. There's, if you really think about it, you, can't, you think, how in the world, how in the world could God truly be working through this thing? And yet, the very plan of redemption, that covenant of redemption that happened in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that plan of redemption 
that happened before any creation happened, is that was being carried out. He was busy about the work of rescuing his fallen creation. In Isaiah 53, just after I think the passage that Sheldon read for us this morning, Isaiah writes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He has put him to grief. It was his will. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In his wonderful sermon at Pentecost, Peter says to the Jewish crowd, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, you think you had the authority in these things. You think you twisted Pilate's arm to crucify this pretender, pretender Messiah. You think you twisted his arm and, and were able to get him to do what you wanted to do. Pilate thought that he had the authority to release him and to crucify him. But Peter reminds the people, no. It was the definite plan of God for this to happen. At the end of the day, God's perfect purpose was fulfilled. His son, in all his blameless perfection, as we'll see next week, hung dying on the cross. The son of God, the spotless lamb of God, he who is tempted in all ways that we are tempted, yet without sin, hung dying on a cross between two thieves. Barabbas should have been on that middle cross. Barabbas was set free. The trial should have been a trial for Barabbas. The flogging should have been received by Barabbas. The cross should have been Barabbas dying between two of his companions. So why was it the Son of God who never committed a single sin? Even the Gentile authority recognized he had no guilt. And still, the Son of God, at the end of this day, would be hanging on a cross dying. Why would he allow this to happen? Well, look with me at Acts chapter 3. After a uh, miraculous healing by Peter and the, the people are astounded in Acts 3.13, Peter says this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided, decided to release him. 
But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. So why didn't Barabbas die on the cross that day? Because if Barabbas had died on the cross that day, Jesus would have gone free. But if Jesus had gone free, you would not have gone free. If Jesus had been set free, you would remain dead in your sins and trespasses. You see, the spotless lamb of God had, according to the definite purpose of God, the son of God had to die on the cross. And that picture of taking Barabbas' place is very helpful for us because he took our place. We might think about Barabbas as thinking one theatrical depiction kind of shows him as this mad man, the worst of the worst, you, where you just look at him and think, oh yeah, that guy's bad. That's you. If we could truly understand the depth and the depravity of our heart, and, and it was depicted in some movie, we would be some raving lunatic who you would look at and say, yes, that person is evil. That person is a monster. That's us. Jesus died in our place. This is the substitutionary atonement where the lamb of God died so that we would not have to. The lamb of God suffered the wrath of his father, the just and perfect and holy wrath of his father against not his sin, but ours. We should have died on the cross. We should have suffered an eternity of God's righteous wrath, his righteous indignation against us. But Christ took our place. Continuing on in Acts 3 with verse 19. What's the response to all this? Peter says to them, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. Repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. See, that's what happened at the cross, that the one who should have never been hung on the cross, the one who should have not gone through any of this trial or flogging, is the very one who, as we, we call it, endured the suffering and shame so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. That in dying on the cross, he suffered the penalty for our sins and in exchange, he clothes us in his robes of righteousness so that we can stand before God 
not on the basis of our own works, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness to us. We stand before God with nothing to boast in but Christ alone. And it's because it wasn't Barabbas on the middle cross, but it was our Savior. As we turn to communion and, you know, it's quite easy to get to communion through these passages as we consider Christ crucified for us. As we come to the communion and we enjoy celebrating the element of the bread and the cup, the the juice, we do so remembering that we get to celebrate this, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. He has gone before us. So we remember that Christ has suffered and died in our place, that Christ has clothed us in his righteousness. And then we look forward to his return because he doesn't stay dead. He doesn't stay buried in the tomb, but he rises on the third day. Then he ascended into heaven. And all authority, one day, as Philippians 2 says, will see him as king of kings and lord of lords, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All earthly authorities will be put to shame. That's what he did on the cross. That's what we celebrate together. If this is your faith, not in your own goodness, not in your own faithfulness, but in the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, that you can say, although weak and feeble, you can say, Jesus hung on that middle cross for me. Jesus died for me. Then you are welcome to this table. And this table doesn't secure your relationship, your, your, that covenant relationship with God. No, this is a celebration of what, God, what Christ has already done for us. If you don't have that faith, if you're, if you're here today just because you're curious about what this whole Christian thing is, but you're like, no, I don't quite believe that I'm bad enough that I needed a savior, a messiah, I would just ask you not not to partake in the elements today. And that's just simply so you aren't confused. And I don't want you to partake in something that God has not given you to partake in. And yet I pray for you that you will, that that God will soften your heart, open your eyes to see the beauty of your savior, that you will be able to say, Jesus died for me, and Jesus lives for me. Let's pray, and we'll take this together. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you have given us life. He is the author of life, and, and though he had no appearance at the time of this suffering that we have been studying, 
of being the author of life. He was going about your very purpose to bring us life. Father, we know that as the beginning of John says that the, the light, Jesus Christ, entered the world and yet the darkness hated the light, rejected him. Father, help us not to be those people who reject the very Savior that you have sent to rescue us, but help us to be a people who with great joy and worship celebrate the light, embrace the light. Father, help us to be a people who love you and help us to be a people who remember that the only way that we can love you is because you first loved us. I pray your blessing upon this supper that we're about to partake in. Father, as we feed on Christ, nourish us in him. Help us to find our only hope, our only comfort in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.